helping you, helping us out. Normally when Paul's here, we like to have him play the organ, and uh, he could play, but you wouldn't hear anything. There's apparently a short somewhere downstairs in the bowels of the earth, and uh, when we turn on the organ power and go to the basement, you hear lots of sizzling, or so I'm told. So electricians are checking it out, but we have to have some wiring done, I think. So we're working on that, and we'll get it up and running as soon as we possibly can. But uh, that's why we're not playing the organ today, just for those of you who would like to hear it. We'd all like to hear it, but it's not hearable right now. So anyhow, uh, just a little explanation about what we're doing. It, uh, was it the 24th that it quit during the service? I think it was. Uh, Sunday the 24th, there was, was Sunday we were using the organ, and Paul was going to conclude with the organ, but it was dead. It just died right here in church. Great place to die, you know, if you're going to die. But uh, anyhow, that's the uh, story of the organ, and uh, hopefully the electricians can get it up and running shortly. I want to begin this morning by reading you a story, and it's a very short story. Denzel Washington has come out with a new book, and it's the first part of the book is about his life, but most of the book is just a collection of stories. And the book is called... Um, a hand to guide me. And Denzel said that as he looks back on his boyhood, there were so many adults who mentored him and helped him along the way, particularly Boys Club of America, which he's very big supporter of. But he said there were so many individuals that helped me along the way in life. I want to honor them. So he tells stories about these men and women who were a key influence in his life as he grew up as a young man and helped shape him and helps us to think about, of course, in our own lives, those key figures who helped to shape us. And uh, this is a story. I found it kind of humorous or amusing. I hope you will, too. Uh, but let me read to you this story. On 3rd Street in Mount Vernon, there was a barbershop called the Modernistic. Isn't that a great name for a barbershop, the Modernistic? You can almost see it, can't you? Anyhow, the Modernistic. And Denzel says, I started working there at the age of 11 or 12 because I wanted to make some money. Jack Coleman took me on as a kindness to my mother, I'm sure, but I thought it was the best job in the world. I was Mr. Coleman's cleanup guy. But the real money came from the tips from the customers. They'd step out of Mr. Coleman's chair, and I'd be on them with a whisk broom and brushing them off, brush off their collars, etc., saying, Man, you look great. Is there anything I can do for you? There were rewards all day long, especially if I was very respectful and solicitous. I also worked hard to see how Mr. Coleman worked. It was also good to see how Mr. Coleman worked hard to make his business run. He wasn't just the head barber. He was like the modernistic's master of ceremonies, presiding over a wonderful, wonderfully eccentric parade of souls. He was a strong individual, and true to his word, the shop was to close at 6.30. He always wanted his barbers to be able to go home for dinner with their families. I'll never forget what he said once when someone walked into the shop at 6.35. Am I late, he asked. Oh, no, no, you're early. You're first. Mr. Coleman said, you're the first one up tomorrow morning. <laughs> and as I thought of that expression, I said, what a great way to respond to some guy that shows up last, you know, 35 after the shop's supposed to close at 6.30, you know, and he, yo, you're first, first one up tomorrow morning. And it demonstrates uh, a leader, this Mr. Coleman, who uh, knew what he was about. He knew what he was doing, and he wasn't going to be deterred to it. He was a man on a mission. He was a man with a plan, and he stuck to his plan, even if a customer showed up late. 
And this morning, I want to pick up where we left off last Sunday. I challenged you last Sunday in two areas. One was about a personal mission, and we talked a little bit about that. And then I also challenged you by sharing with you the mission of First Baptist Church. And the mission of FBCP is, as you well know, right? I want to see some head work here. You need to warm up anyhow. Oh, I got the lady on the front row. Let's check. Is my mic working now? Oh, thank you. I feel better already. Wow, that's just like the movies or something. They hold up something. If you'd hold up the rest of my sermon, I could just read it. Uh, Anyhow, where were we? The mission of First Baptist Church. Thank you, Elena. Uh, The mission of First Baptist Church Pasadena is to make followers of Jesus who love, worship, and serve God. You can say that, right? Let's try it. The mission of First Baptist Church Pasadena is to make followers of Jesus who love, worship, and serve God. And as we talked about that, I said I want to pick up on our theme of last year with our Become a Bridge of Love theme for this year. And so I presented that theme. Now, I'd like to unpack that a bit more for you this morning. And if you will turn in your Bible to, to, Luke, uh, to, Luke, to John chapter 2, we're going to look uh, at some scripture for just a moment. John chapter 2, and it's on page 93 if you want to use one of the Bibles in front of you. <clears throat> There's also in your order of worship a little outline that I'm going to be referring to in a few moments. And if you want to follow along this morning, you may want to reference that outline as well. Now, in John chapter 2, we have the first miracle of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's a fun story. And I've really had some fun this week looking at not only this text, but thinking about this moment with you. And I'll explain that a little more in a moment. But we begin with the story, as you heard it read a moment ago, it's a wedding. And it's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, sort of where Jesus grew up. And we don't know much about it. We're told that Jesus' mother was there. Now, who was Jesus' mother? Mary. That's her name, right? Could you learn that if you read the Gospel of John? You couldn't, because Mary's never mentioned by name in the Gospel. Interestingly, John always refers to her as the mother of Jesus, and that's the case here. And so it is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she's there, and Jesus is there. And his disciples, and it says they've been inviting to this wedding. And in verse 3, we kind of pick up with the crisis of the story. It says, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I'm sure most of us guys, unless we're big entertainers, don't appreciate the crisis like we really ought to. But when a meal is prepared, when the wine is set, and you have folks over, the last thing in the world you want to do is what? Run out. You don't want to run out of food or wine. And that's exactly what has happened here. They run out. And the relationship Jesus' mother has to all this, we really don't know. Why she was concerned, why she thought Jesus could do something. There's all kinds of things you can speculate about here, but it's only speculation because we're not sure why she comes to Jesus with this request. Uh, but she does. Oftentimes, maybe it's because he's the oldest son, and oftentimes the oldest child gets looked to. You know, here's a problem, fix it. Mom comes to you and says, do something. And maybe it's as simple as that. Some have suggested that it was the custom. Now, I'm not sure this is accurate, but some have suggested it was the custom that when you would come to somebody's house like this or to this wedding feast, that as you came, you would bring a bottle of wine, a gift to the guest. And so that as each guest came and brought wine, there'd be enough wine for everybody. Now, someone said, well, Jesus showed up, and of course, he didn't bring any wine. And he showed up with all these guys, and 
they didn't bring any wine. And, uh, of course, because they were Baptists, they didn't drink any wine, right? Um, but anyhow, some have suggested because Jesus showed up with his entourage, that's why they ran out of wine. I don't think that's accurate, but it does get mentioned quite a bit. We're not sure why they ran out of wine. The point is they did. And Mary's concerned. And Jesus says to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? It's not our business. Now, Jesus is not being disrespectful. He's simply saying to her uh, that it's not her business. And he goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. And I want to pick out a couple words in this story to emphasize for a moment. And the word hour is one of them. Because as you read the book of John, John is a poet. And he writes with a lot of symbolism. There's meaning behind his words. And this word hour, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. It's a word that comes up 21 times in the book. Jesus will talk about his hour. Is it the right hour or the wrong hour? It's not the hour yet. And in fact, at the very end of the book, when Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he's going to be going to the cross and to to die on the cross and that that's actually a part of the plan, Jesus says, my hour has come. And so Jesus does reach a point in this story where he says, it is the right hour. The hour has come, the very hour for which I came into this world to die on the cross. But at this point, he says, my hour is not yet come. And he simply means it's not the right time. The timing is not right. And so I'm not going to act. And so Jesus uh, basically says for her to wait. It's interesting. She tells the servants there, well, whatever Jesus asks you to do, just do that. And you know the story. I won't belabor it. But one other thing I want to point out uh, in the middle of the story here, I think verses 5, 6, and where it says there are six empty water pots. How much did they hold? 20 to 30 gallons. What is six times 30? 180. That's a lot of water, isn't it? You can figure if you looked at six pots and they hold 20 to 30 gallons, you know, they're pretty good sized pots. There's six of them there. You fill them up with water. That's a lot of water. Now, the deal is, as the story unfolds, Jesus says to the servants at some point, fill those pots with water. And so they do. And then he instructs the head waiter, take some water or takes whatever is the liquid in the pot, take it over to the uh, master of ceremonies, the best man or whoever that person was, and give him some to drink. Now, it's apparently what happened was as they reached into those water pots, what was in them? Water, right? I mean, they put water in there, got it out of a hose or the well or something, you know, they put water. So as they reached into the water pots, they took water out, and as they took it over, you've got to wonder what the waiter is thinking. I'm doing what Jesus told me to do, but what, you know, I'm taking some water over to this guy who says we're out of wine. But anyhow, the best man there, the master of ceremonies, and I was picturing this, you know, a nice, beautiful wine glass, all crystal clear, and I was thinking, how did that work? You start out with water, and it sort of changes colors on the way over. And then I thought, I'll bet it wasn't a crystal clear glass, you know, it was some, something that was, uh, uh, ceramic or something like that, a clay, something out of clay or glass, something like that. So I don't think it was clear. So I think he put, you know, he got the water in there and he's walking over there and the waiter watches as the master of ceremonies tips this up ah, and he tastes it or I don't know how you're supposed to taste. I guess, you know, he swirls it in his mouth or whatever he does, smells it, all that stuff. You know, he does all his thing and the waiter's watching the face of this guy. 
And as the guy tastes the wine, and as it dawns on him what he's actually tasting, I think his eyes probably got big. And the waiter's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's really upset. He thought he was going to get wine, and I gave him water, and hope he doesn't spit it all over me. I mean, what's going to happen here? And so there's got to be some tension here in the waiter's soul as he brings some water, wine to this guy. But this guy's tasted and he's taken a long time at it. His eyes are getting big and then suddenly he says, wow, this is amazing. And he calls the people together and says, normally you serve the best first. When you run out of that, you serve the worst or the lesser. But you've switched it all around. You saved the best wine to last. This stuff is fabulous. Now can you imagine what the waiter's thinking? What on earth? What is this about? Now, what do you think the waiter does when he leaves this fellow and goes back to those jars? I mean, what would you do? Huh? You'd taste test. Yeah, what's going on here? Doesn't taste like sparklets to me. I mean, surely he went back there and there are other waiters there and he said, Die, you'll never believe what happened. And they tried to some and said, Yeah, this is good wine. This is amazing. What happened? And so there had to be a, a hubbub. I mean, this, this is quite a deal because, first of all, the, the man who knows has said, this is fantastic wine. He's made a big deal about the quality of wine, never realizing what happened. But the servants understand what happened, and the disciples understand what happened. What do they understand happened? They went and got water. They served it to this guy, and at some point between that jug and when it hit his mouth, it was great wine. How did this happen? Who's responsible? One person, Jesus. That's what they know. Jesus is running this show, and it must be Jesus. And so, as you read this very short story, it's easy to get excited and have a lot of fun. You know, this someone has called this a luxury miracle. Why would Jesus do this anyhow? I mean, nobody, you know, there are lots of sick people that didn't get healed that day. There were, I don't know, you know, you can think of all kinds of things you could be doing other than making wine. But this is what Jesus did. And it's all wrapped up in verse 11, where it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs. And that's an important word for John, because throughout the book, he has signs in the Gospel of John. There aren't a lot of miracles here, but the few are all like signs. Now, it's easy to, to get all excited about the water becoming wine and have fun with the story, and I think that's fine. But when you go down the street and you see a stop sign, you realize that that stop sign may have saved your life, right? Because it said stop. Now, you don't get out and run over and hug the sign and say, oh, what a great sign this is. I'm so glad it's here. You've never done that, have you? I mean, just been so thankful for that sign that said stop and you stopped. No, you you see the sign, you stop, you recognize this is going to help me so that I don't pull out in this intersection and get broadsided. It's there for a reason. But you don't celebrate the sign. You celebrate what the sign says or does for you, what it points to. And so it is here that it's a great miracle. But what's the point of the miracle? You know, we need to move beyond the water and the wine because that's really not the essence of the thing. What's the essence? Well, it says in verse 11, Jesus uh, did this, the first sign in Cana of Galilee. Why did he do it? It revealed his glory. It says, and it revealed his glory. Last week I mentioned epiphany. You remember that word, the manifestation or to show forth? And we talked about 
uh, Epiphany is the showing forth of Jesus. The Magi saw Jesus. He, Jesus was revealed to the Gentiles in the Magi. This is another Epiphany in a sense when people begin to see who is Jesus as he starts his ministry. Who is this character from Nazareth called Jesus? And this helps reveal it. Two, two uh, explanations. I don't know about you, but when I bicycle around Pasadena or drive around, it's just amazing, the gorgeous houses. It's a good thing I wasn't Bill Gates. I'd buy every house in Pasadena and live in it for a few months or something. I mean, it's just all the architecture here is amazing. And sometimes, wouldn't you like to just kind of go up on the front lawn and peer through the front window into the living room to see what's the decoration like? What's the woodwork like? What's it, how's it set up? You know, you'd like, to re, you'd like to, the house inside to be revealed to you. You'd like to see it. Well, that's a natural thing we have, that, and that's partly what happens here. This is a way of sort of a window into Jesus. Who is this character? Well, he's a guy that can show up at a wedding and do this. That's who he is. And so you see a little bit of Jesus' glory, or who he really is, is revealed. In 2001, uh, my son and I and some friends did a bike trip to Europe, and we were there to see the Tour de France. And that year, the tour was going to race. Part of the mountain stage was to go up Alpe d'Huez. And that's the most famous of all mountain climbs in that famous race. They don't do it every year, but they do it frequently. And there are 22 pin, hairpin curves as that makes its way up to the top. To the, it's really a ski resort area, Alpe d'Huez. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge climb. All the famous racers have raced up that. And at each curve turn, there's a sign with the name of a famous cyclist who's won on Alpe d'Huez at some point in the tour's history. It's, it's quite an occasion. It's the defining moment of that particular race. Well, on this particular occasion, we were there. We got there early. We got set up because we wanted to watch the riders as they raced up the mountain. Now, we saw all this later because we couldn't see it live. We were in this one little spot. But as they race that day, these riders ride for over 100 miles, and they finally come to the base of this mountain. And the they're going to end on top of it, so it's a final sprint to the top, sprint so-called. Now, as they did that, they had raced hard all day, and there were just a few elite riders at the front. I don't remember, a half dozen or less. One of them, of course, was Lance Armstrong. Another one was Jan Ulrich and some other riders. And as they reached the base of that mountain and began that horrendous climb after having ridden for hours, uh, there was a lot of tension. You know, who still has the legs and the strength and the stamina to get up the mountain first? And at that scene, as they just started climbing, they were all together in this cluster. And Lance Armstrong got a few bike lengths ahead. And there's a now famous thing called the look. You've probably seen it. Where as Lance is up there, he turns back on his bike and he looks back into the eyes of Jan Ulrich, his number one opponent, to measure him. How's he doing? How's he breathing? What's he look like? And there's this long stare from Lance back to Jan as he just stares at him as they begin to ride up this hill. And then he turns around and his tempo picks up and he just rode away, one by several minutes. It was, a, it was a, a tremendous statement of power to say, I'm leaving now, guys. If you can hang on, hang on. And they couldn't. Well, in that moment, Lance Armstrong revealed his glory. He said, okay, we're at the base of the mountain. Here's where it all starts or ends. Let's see what you can do. And he showed what he could do. And so you got a sense of his power on that particular day. Now, in this story, that's exactly what Jesus, it reveals his glory. Who is this Jesus? Well, he really is God's son. He can actually turn the water to wine. He is unique. He's not like other people because he is God's son. He is actually the Messiah, the Christ.
And as the disciples began to understand who Jesus was, this was the beginning of that understanding. And what does it say happened? Verse 11 again. His disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. And this morning, as we think about uh, this story, the result is, as we understand who Jesus is, the goal is that we believe in him, that we do recognize he is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. And as we see that glory, we receive it and we believe. Do you believe? Are you a believer? I trust that you are. Now, as we've talked about our theme, I want to... Uh, I've, I've kind of had fun with this. I hope it's okay to have fun with our theme. But uh, I'm going to give you, the, throughout the rest of this month, four words that are going to help us unpack this theme a bit. Four words that are going to help shape our journey together. And uh, I'm going to give you a couple of them this morning. I'll give you another one next week. But as uh, I've thought about this, I've had a little fun. Become a bridge of love. A bridge, of course, is something you get on one end, hopefully, and you go to the other. You want to go somewhere. And all of us, um, I think the bridge both helps us understand that we're on a journey, and we hope that we can be a bridge to someone else that they might find God or experience God's love. Now, as you think with me about this theme this year, Become a Bridge of Love, I do hope you'll think of yourself as a pilgrim on a journey or a, a, a person as we're walking across a bridge together, that we're on a pilgrimage or a journey together. Now, sometimes you know where you're going on the journey, but lots of times unexpected things happen, like the boilers don't run, and uh, you just have to adapt, right? And so I, I hope as we go through this year together that we can have this idea of being on a pilgrimage or journey together. And the first word I want to give you is this word, learn. L-E-A-R-N. Learn. Learn what it means to become a bridge of love. Now, again, I really wish I had about another half an hour to just unpack this one, but um, our society has a lot to say about love. There are all kinds of crazy things that get said about love. But I simply want to raise this up this morning. It's not as easy to love and to be a bridge of love as it might first seem, uh, first appear. Do you agree with that? That sometimes to be a lover is harder than we initially think. And I simply want to raise that up this morning. As I talk about becoming a bridge of love, as we do that, I don't think it's easy, and I don't think I'm a very good lover, and I don't think you're a very good lover, and so we need to be learning lovers as we go along. Does that make sense? One example, and then I want to look at a scripture. Uh, I was fascinated by the articles in the L.A. Times this week about Bill and Melinda Gates. Did you read that? I mean, nobody in the history of humanity has given away money like they are giving away money. It's never happened before with the massive amounts they have. It's never happened. And they are using all their enormous skill and brilliance to try and make that money work. In other words, they don't just throw money at a problem. They, they're evaluating the results. And yet, with, in spite of all this goodwill, did you see the articles? They said sometimes they're helping and sometimes they're hurting. And some of their investments are actually hurting people. And so it, it raised up and I thought, you know, how hard it is to, to truly do good. And I just raised that up as you and I seek to do good and we get all warm and fuzzy in church talking about love. It's not easy to do the loving thing. And that's why we need to be learners. Constantly learning. Constantly changing. So that as we build, become bridges of love, we're actually doing some good we're doing more, you know, in the medical profession, you want to do more help than harm. I mean, we all want to do 
more help than harm. And so I want to raise that up. So what is, what is one way we can understand love? Well, of course, 1 Corinthians 13 is a great statement on love. And I'd like to read that off the screen. Would you read it with me? And as we think about becoming learners about love, we need to keep going back to the Scripture to help us define love. Let's read it together. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. So let's hang on to that verse to help us to define and help you to think about when I want to do the loving thing, what is it? Uh, Keep this verse in mind. Now, the second word I want to give you is the word obey. As we learn, it's not so we can pass a test and get an A. As we learn, it's so that it changes our behavior and character into the character of Christ. And so I lift up this word obey. As you learn about God this year, as you learn what it means to become a bridge of love, are you willing to be the person God wants you to be? I have to say, sometimes I just say, Lord, I really don't want to be like that, you know. I like my old way. And are you willing to do what God wants you to do? That's called obedience. And it's essential to a walk with Christ, a life of faith. And so I lift this up. Now, uh, as we wrap up this morning, I want to give you three indicators of, that help you think about obedience. There, there need to be more. This is just to kind of get you on the path. When we talk about obedience, what do we mean? Number one, obeying God will mean going counter to someone else's will. Obeying God will mean going counter to someone else's will. In the story about Jesus, there's that verse in chapter uh, 2, verse 3, or whatever it was. Whose will did Jesus counter in order to obey God? Back to the wedding. Huh? His mother's. She was pushing one way. He said, just forget it, Mom. It's not going to happen. In my time, I'll do what I do. Now, hear me well on both counts. All of us need lots of counsel. The Bible says with a lot of counselors, there's wisdom. And we need the counsel of friends, family, church members. We all need counsel in life as we make decisions. Okay, so nail that down. We're not against counsel by what we're saying. But there does come a time as you do God's will that, and I think it's probably always true uh, in, a, in a life of a dedicated servant, where you're going to have a situation where you say, this is what God's called me to do, and somebody that you respect who's a good, believing person is going to say, oh, don't do that. You know, I don't think you should. And they're going to resist what you think is God's will. It happens when the missionaries are called to go overseas and their families stay up, stand up and say, well, why, why can't you serve Christ here? You don't need to go to the other side of the world to serve Christ. Why are you doing that? You might die over there. And so I want to encourage you that as you seek to obey God, there may be some even believers who are going to seek to counter what you're saying. Now, secondly, obeying God means promoting God, not you. Now, I've got a bunch of verses listed here. But I want to remind us as we go through life together as a church, it's not about me. It's not Pastor Steve's church, as you well know. It's not your church either, as you well know. It's Christ's church. And as we become a bridge of love, who's to get the glory when a kind act is done? 
Who's to receive the glory? It's God. Who's to receive the glory when something wonderful happens? It's God. We're here to serve God and to promote God's will on earth, not our own. And we can get real mixed up about that if we're not careful. So I want to encourage us in that as well. And then finally, obeying God helps some to believe, but not all. As Jesus performed this miracle, the reality was some folks came to Christ. They became believers in him as the Messiah. His disciples, it said, believed in him. And as you go through the book of John, that's the key word. People believed in him. Did everybody believe in Jesus when they saw a miracle? I would think the answer would be yes. Why wouldn't you believe? But, of course, the answer is no. People saw the same thing, and some said, I believe. Some said, I don't believe. And as you live your life, the goal is that we help others know and believe in Jesus Christ. Will they all? No. Will some? Yes. And that, again, is our goal. So this morning, I want to encourage you, as uh, we go forward as a church to become bridges of love, um, to become a bridge of love in 2007. And as you do that, are you willing to be a learner? Are you willing to learn? And secondly, as you learn, are you willing to obey what God has taught you? Last night, as Joyce and I were getting ready for bed, our daughter-in-law, Shannon, called. And uh, Joyce answered the phone and talked to her, and she, Shannon said, uh, I want Steve to be on the phone, too. So we put it on speakerphone, and uh, we began to talk to Shannon. And she shared with us that her cousin, and I'm going to call him Ben, that's not his name, but she said, you know, I need you to pray for Ben. Now, we've prayed for him before, but Ben is a young man, I think 34 years old, something like that, was married, has several small children. He's an alcoholic. And his alcoholism has become so bad that it's broken up his home, so his, his wife's left, his children are never around him, and he's, now his alcoholism has attacked his organs, and so he's having organ failure. He's in the hospital at USC. They think he's not going to live. He's in a coma. It's that bad, 30-some years old. And so we, we talked with Shannon. We prayed with her. Her uh, aunt and uncle, this boy's parents, or young man's parents, are flying in from Texas to be with him. Now, I know Shannon's family. Her, her grandparents are, live in Orange County are very committed Catholics. They're deeply, people deeply committed to God. And so their children have grown up in the church, and they know Christ and know about Christ. And so this young man's been exposed to the gospel, and he knows. But as I went to bed last night, my heart was just broken because I know how the family has reached out to try to help this young man, and yet nothing seems to work, and it appears now that he's not going to make it many more days. And I thought, how does this happen? And as you think of people you know in difficult situations, you wonder, how on earth does this happen? And as I woke up this morning, he again was on my mind, and I prayed. And I thought, you know, as, as we talk about this theme, becoming a bridge of love, the, the, the point is that there, there's a world out there of so many hurting people, and you know them, and I know them, they're in our families, and we need to be the best possible place and church and people that perhaps someone years ago could have or should have been a better bridge of love to this young man to help him over this tremendous difficulty he's had, and it doesn't look like he's going to conquer. And so this morning, as, as we conclude, I want to pray for this young man, and I want to pray for us that that we see our lives as, as with real purpose to make a difference for others and for Christ and to reach out in our families and beyond to be this kind of bridge that uh, we can be a bridge of love. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, I know that in some of our families there are children who are struggling with alcoholism or marijuana addiction or drug addiction. 
There are other addictions that people may be struggling with. And I want to lift up a prayer right now for uh, especially young people that may be struggling or maybe not so young with addiction. And if you would like, if you're thinking of someone like I am of this young man, I'd like you to stand with me where you are. And then I'm going to conclude in prayer, just asking God to help us do what we can to reach out to others and let them know that God loves them. So if you would just stand right now, if you can think of someone in your family or friends or neighborhood or maybe uh, in any context, uh, let's stand and make this a holy moment when we lift these folks up to the Lord in prayer. Shall we pray? Father, all around this sanctuary, uh, we are standing, men and women, and there are the names of people that we love and care about uh, on our minds. And Lord, we lift up each person who might be struggling right now. I think of this young man lying in the hospital, and I pray that he lives long enough for his parents to arrive today to see him. Uh, If there's a way for his life to be spared, Lord, we pray for the doctors and nurses who care for him. We pray for his body and for healing. And we pray for all those who especially struggle today. And Lord, if in some way we could be used as a bridge of love this year to encourage those who have fallen, to encourage those who struggle so mightily, we pray that you use us and help us, Lord, to learn how to be bridges of love. As we learn, help us to obey and, and to be like Jesus and to be able to reach out and touch others with your love. Thank you for loving us, and we pray for courage in our own lives that we might turn away from those things that are destructive in our life and harmful, that we might constantly turn towards you uh, to trust and obey. We lift up each person on our mind now. Thank you for loving them. They are made in your image. They are precious. And we pray your power in their life for good. In Christ's name, amen.